So many memories have come flooding back. I put this song on repeat, just crying my eyes out. It made me feel so bloody alive. This song really nails the feeling of nostalgia for a place. And we all just stopped talking and just stared at the radio. Like, what is that? It's part of the noble genre of songs by women about masturbation. I love it. I love that song so much. Box. Meet people through their music with Ash Berdebez on FBI. Top of the morning to you. If you tuned into Mornings with Alex Pye, you might have heard another great instalment of Listen Close with Serge Negus. It's talking about the background of the new song by Pussy Riot. It's called Chiaka and it's about the Russian legal system and it was really interest- interesting stuff. And you can listen back through the FBI radio website when you go to the mornings program page. My guest on Out of the Box today is no stranger to FBI. It's uh, the professor, James Avanatakis. And for years, James got up early in the morning to tell us in FBI how human society works and changes. And you may have noticed and mourned the absence of his segment, Sociologic, which was on since 2012. Welcome on the show, James. Hey, Ash. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? Yeah, great. Thanks. Very excited to be here. So uh, Sociologic hasn't been on for a little bit. But it's being reborn in some form. Yeah, we're shooting a podcast or film. How do you, do you shoot a podcast? Recording. I don't know. Recording a podcast? Yeah, Sna- we're, slapping together yeah, a podcast. Yeah, we're making a podcast <laughs> and uh, hopefully we'll be out uh, before the end of the month is the, the aim. Yeah, we just had, we've done a couple of pilot episodes and sorting out a few little things because it's a slightly different you know, genre for me. But yeah, and I, I do miss coming in, but uh, it was a bit difficult. It got a bit difficult. Especially that time of the morning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Would you believe it's because it was uh, too much of a late start for me? I'm usually up at 5.05. Is my is my standard wake what? up? Is, yeah, yeah. So, do you just not sleep, or uh, yeah, are I, you in bed at like I'm nine? Not, yeah, no, I'm not a big fan of sleep. I find sleep gets in the way of things. So, yeah. Really? Are you like on some sort of Uberman schedule? <laughs> How do you not? I, I live for sleep. Uh, yeah, yeah. Look, I, I my my partner is a, is a sleeper, so that always causes a bit of friction when she just <laughs> she she needs an extra three four hours to what I do. So, uh, yeah, but she can sleep through anything. So I can just get up and put music on and work and. Nice. Yeah, just walk around the house and doesn't doesn't bother her at all. She yeah, that's the perks. He's out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty good. You, you get lots of shit done. So uh, you're prolific. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, at the end of last year, you also came out with a book yeah. called Sociologic. That's right. Born from the... Uh, well, it's a sociology textbook and uh, it was, I suppose, born from the show in, in many ways. Um, what I'm really interested in as, a, as an academic, as a theorist, is I don't think theory is something you should put up on the shelf and look at like it's something that, uh, you know, you can't touch it and you can't challenge it. I think theory is like putty, you know, or, you know, like it, it should be played with in your hands. It should be reshaped. It should be challenged. You should put holes in it. You should throw it against the wall and wrestle with it. And so um, so I wrote a, a book about five, six years ago looking at um, sociology theory and it was quite a small book but this is quite a large textbook it's aimed at that first year students and anyone else interested in 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 sociology and and sort of how we can apply those what what insights sociologists can apply to our lives but it's very much looking at contemporary issues it's very it's very alive and that's I suppose it's like what I used to do on sociologic but on the written page yeah, it's mm. good because a lot of a lot of that kind of sociology theory just seems to be so over here and then the real world is over there yeah, and yeah. there's not a lot of interplay but you've managed to always pick up really interesting subjects with sociologic things that actually affect the real world things that when you talk about them 
you could talk about them in a pub. You wouldn't necessarily need to talk about them in a lecture scenario for it to make sense. And that's, that's I was going to say that, and it's funny you should say that because that's always been one of my philosophies, has been that we should teach people to have conversations in pubs or in restaurants or, or you know, with family dinner. You know, how do you respond to your, you know, racist uncle Kevin at, at, <laughs> at, at, at you know, at, you know, at dinner when he says something, at Christmas dinner when he says something inappropriate or... Because no one knows how to do that. Yeah, yeah, without, without like just, you know, throwing a glass of wine in his face, right? So I've always wanted to build those conversations into everyday life. And uh, and I think if, if we, uh, if academics fa- don't do that, don't provide a language and an environment where we can have honest and open conversations and ask uncomfortable conversations, and I think we're failing, um, and I think we're failing students. And, and so, yeah, so that's how I, I see the role of an academic and the role of, of, of theory. It's there to be played with. Yeah, kind of getting rid of the idea of the academic world. Yeah. Putting it in the actual world. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Speaking of uh, prolific, it is your 10-year anniversary since you finished your PhD. Yeah, that makes me feel definitely old. <laughs> which maybe, I am, maybe I suppose. Maybe I shouldn't be counting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, congratulations which, um, on your anniversary. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took me three years, nine months and 12 days in case anyone's interested. Oh, yeah. that's a lot of life. Yeah, it is. It is, yeah. Dear me. Yeah. And what was it on? So it actually was called Hope and Abundance. Um, and so it was on the concept of hope. And uh, where hope comes from, and so I have a very uh, type of I have a very distinct definition of hope. It's a non-religious hope, and what I argue is hope is what is created in our actions when we try and make the world a better place. So I look at I look at the activist, the artist, the musician who tries to create awareness and build something special within within the within the world, tries to make the world a better place. You know, we, a better world is possible, and that's what I describe as hope. And uh, I, I spent a lot of time working in uh, in societies that went from conflict to post-conflict, and I was interested about those steps that that brought societies together. You know, we often study what starts a war, but really, we really look at what ends a war. And um, and what I found was people in, in in these areas went from shooting at each other to working together. And that's because they started believing that their actions could make, could, could bring peace. And that's that was for me what I defined as hope. And where were you doing this kind of work? Yeah, look, I worked all over the place. I worked, I did some research in Indonesia in different parts. I, I worked in different parts of Papua New Guinea, in the Solomon Islands. Um, I also spent some time in, in sort of kind of very tense places in, in Europe, um, around sort of the, the outskirts of France, you know, the, sorry, the outskirts of Paris, um, where there'd been historically, you know, a lot of lot of disaffected young people. And uh, yeah, and specifically, um, uh, there was a place, Abuka, which is the capital of the island of, of Bougainville, which is just off the coast of uh, Papua New Guinea, uh, and spent a lot of time there working um, with some activists there who were working towards towards peace. So it was a, a fascinating experience, a scary experience, but a fascinating experience nonetheless. What did you see as the kind of turning point between people just being kind of, I guess, re- resentful or fearful of each other mm. and then having hope? What was what was kind of one of the main tools that turned things around? Yeah, look, I mean, I suppose there was a number of things, but first of all, it was, I suppose, is when people went, actually, when people got to a point where they went, actually, working towards peace and my actions towards peace, my actions can make a difference. So when people actually felt they had a sense of empowerment towards, towards peace, that meant that they their empowerment was no longer violence. Their empowerment was a, a form of, of, of talking and or politics or, or discussions and, and, and actions that they could have which weren't violent. And that, that transition, it was, it was a really interesting transition to see people come to that recognition. It was really inspiring, you know, and, um, and you know, I worked so much, it was so much of what the work I did was really dark and, and, and depressing and horrible. And then to see that people could, you know, work towards hope and then identifying that's what, that's what a lot of us do when we try and make the world a better place. Then I thought, wow, that's a really empowering and inspiring 
worrying thing to, to sort of immerse yourself in. It's kind of nice. It's like, you know, knowing you're going to be listened to <laughs> is a massive part of hope. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you think about anything that you're involved in, uh, you know, like you, you you don't buy in if you don't have a voice, you know, and if you don't have a voice and you you feel passionate about something and you become disaffected. And, uh, and so the opposite of that is being passionate about something and feeling that you're heard. Even if you don't get what you want, feeling what, that you're heard and people take account of you and acknowledge you um, has a really, really powerful impact on the way that people engage. And so so in the contemporary world, I look at young people and citizenship and look at why young people are turning away from, from believing in democracy and our citizenship. And one of the reasons is because a lot of people don't feel like they have a voice. And so that's, um, that's sort of how I've taken that work mm. into, into my sort of more, more recent research. Definitely makes sense. I mean, you look at things like the way we treat asylum seekers and a lot of people go, what, what can I practically do? Mm. It seems so far out of the realm of changeability. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I suppose that's the thing is, and some of the things I argue is often, you know, the, while the political, the, the political powers seem um, ignorant of, of what the public is demanding, it's often those little actions that we can do, which can create spaces of hope that, that allow people people to carry on, you know, um, visiting people, uh, visiting refugees, writing those letters of hope, giving, you know, small presents, um, you know, all those things create that environment that people um, know that you're supporting them and gives them the strength to go on, hoping that one day, you know, we will be able to break down these systems that, that exclude and, and persecute. So we've got DJ Dr. Professor James Ivanatakis in the studio for Out of the Box today, and it's time for our first song of the show. By Augie March, and when were you listening to this track uh, just passing through? Yeah, well, look, I look, I really like emotive songs, and I I I, um, I write, and so this is a, very much a, a writing song for me. Um, it's I suppose it's a, a I love this song so much because it's sort of like. It sort of captures, um, I don't know, the temporarily of life. You know, we're just sort of passing through, and it's the impact that we can have that, that counts, I suppose, even that, that little space that we have on this planet. So, yeah, that's where my, my love for this song comes from.
Bit of a walk down memory lane right there on FBI 94.5. My name is Ash Berdebez and you are tuned in to Out of the Box on this fine station. And my guest today is Dr. Professor James Ivanitakis, who bought on that one by Angus and Julia Stone. Now, why do you want to bring that song on the show? Uh, it's, I mean, it's just such a great song. And I think it brings memories back to everyone. It specifically reminds me of my partner, my, my Alex, who is at the moment studying at university while I'm here hanging out. Um, so, yeah, it's just one of those songs. I just think it's such a mellow and chilled song. And it's just, I know it's a happy song, right? Yeah. And and it's uh, most happy songs are cheesy, but Angus and Julia seem to just bring out these happy songs that aren't aren't cheesy. So, yeah, it just cheers me up. Yeah. Oh, it sings to your soul. Yeah, yeah, it does. Speaking of, of cheesy, we've got a bit of cheesy coming up in a second. Uh, 
I won't tell you We've which got song. real cheesy coming up in a second. <laughs> You've been warned. So uh, I think it's time for us to have a little bit of a flashback to probably before you met your partner, Alex, much longer ago. Uh, what did you What did you study originally when you went to uni? Yeah, so my first degree was actually in economics. And uh, I, yeah, I, I studied economics at U- University of New South Wales. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, I stopped working in, I, I finished that and my first job was actually in finance. I worked in banking and finance for a good nine years of my life. Wow, you're a banker. I just, I can't picture it. And then all of a sudden I can. So, I mean, that's a very certain lifestyle. I mean, it's not often that you go, oh, you're a banker. And then someone's wearing like hemp or whatever. So you were kind of like a high flying character, I assume. Yeah, look, I I did, I suppose, take on the attitude and, and the sort of the lived a lifestyle. I had a, a convertible and uh, I was you know, I used to dress pretty flash and, uh, and yeah, you said sort of, I took, I took on the personality and at the, at the time I remember people used to talk about snags, which is sensitive new age guys. And I used to describe <laughs> myself as a chop, which is a, a chauvinistic, hedonistic, opportunistic prick. So, um, so that's, how, so, and I, I did live that lifestyle. I mean, I lived it as to the fullest actually, um, as much as I could and I was pretty hedonistic and it was a like, pretty heady, heady days. Yeah. So, I mean, your your hedonistic years, did they kind of make you happy? Um, look, I don't think the concept of happy was really something I, I thought about. I, I, look, you know, to put it in perspective, I was a, the parents, uh, my parents are Greek immigrants, uh, came here with very little and sort of having financial security was always something that was drummed into us. Um, they, so, you know, so making money was really a lot about that and I, I think I confused, um, I confused what financial security and making money was about, and I sort of started make. I became obsessed with making, assuming as many assets as I could. You know, getting a share portfolio, you know, buying property, and or doing all these things which I thought would would fulfil something. Mm-hmm. And and look, the honest truth was, no, it didn't, because it was not a very fulfilling life. Like I mean, those, those, I had a good time, I partied, I enjoyed aspects of it. Um, but it wasn't something I would say was either fulfilling or necessarily made me happy. And I think uh, when I had the opportunity um, to to leave, I did. I left, and I've never really gone back. So, what made you what made you leave? What was the turning point? Yeah, look, there was probably a number of things. Um, one of the, to be honest with you, um, one thing was that I actually woke up one morning um, and I looked at myself in the mirror. And I really didn't like who I'd become uh, or what I was becoming. Um, the the second thing is I was sitting in a meeting one day and I was the youngest person there by about 10, 15 years. Um, and um, someone someone had just recently got married and we um, we we said, everyone congratulated them. And then someone said, oh, well, how long do you reckon this one will last? This is his third marriage. And then we went around the room and everyone had been married at least twice. And I went, there's something about this lifestyle that kind of breeds this kind of attitude and you know like it's not not a big deal and I thought oh man I don't want to be I don't want to be I looked around the room and I said I don't want to be these guys you know I don't, I don't want to be this person um and the third thing was I just kind of yeah um I did things I shouldn't have done um I hurt people that I shouldn't have hurt and I I sort of went wow and I did that because that was just the lifestyle it was you didn't really think beyond you know beyond tomorrow and uh and they're kind of the regrets I carry with me and I guess it seems like banking just really, well, you know, the money world promotes a very individualistic lifestyle. That probably is a reason that maybe those guys hadn't had very successful marriages and that you managed to hurt some people. Yeah, so yeah. So you, you actually end up doing a little bit of research into like happiness and happiness uh, literature and stuff yeah. like that. Has that made you actually kind of reflect differently upon the time that you were a banker? Yeah, look, I mean, I think 
look, yeah, I, I recently wrote a, a chapter for a book on happiness, um, and I, I have been interested in, in happiness literature. And what I find um, is is that happiness is often sold to us as either being something that is attainable by achieving something, and that's not true, and or or it's because of the lack in our lives, you know. And if you just can fill in that lack, then um, then that will make you feel better. You know, it's almost like a, a spirit level. You've just got to fill things in, and it'll mm. it'll lift up. And and that's not true either. Ultimately, um, and what I what I found in that in that that environment that I was in, it's like a it was a hyper it was a you know it was a hyper individualistic environment, but also a hyper masculine environment, you know. And so happiness was in that environment was about attaining as much as you could, conquering you know so to speak as much as you could. And uh, and yeah, and so I suppose looking back on on, on that, um, it was very much the lack of something that. It was driving you, and that lack was defined in terms of, of wealth, uh, ultimately, you know. Mm, competitive, building yeah. a nest egg too yeah. big for any nest ever. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and you know, and then I read about this guy once. You know, it was just bizarre. I read this story about this guy who um who had retired and bought him, you know, had worked all his life and bought himself this yacht, and then all his friends were at work, and when he retired, he went sailing on his own all the time. <laughs> and I just went, wow, that's really sad. I don't wow. want to. I don't want to be that guy, you know. I, I really don't want to be that guy. And I thought about the people I was hanging out with and I thought, actually, you know, I don't know if I like these people either. You know what I mean? Like it was just that, but it was the thing that we had in common was work and that was the only thing that, that really kept kept us going. So I guess yeah. we'll talk a little bit about your next chapter, your, little, your downshift, so to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess in a second. But first, I think it's time for a bit of cheese. Now, what song do we have and why? Well, um, okay, so you got to imagine me uh, in my sort of mid-20s, a convertible roof down, pumping out the heavy metal, you know, the sunglasses on with the uh, the business suit on the way to work. So I think we listen to a little bit of a Judas Priest, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> it's Breaking the Law. Dr. James Vanatakis on the show today.
listening to Out of the Box and FBI 94.5. I was going to say that you were listening to Triple M and see if I could trick anyone into uh, changing stations, but no, you are here with us and that the man responsible for bringing in some Judas Priest breaking the law is Professor James Ivanatakis. Thanks for bringing that one in. I think last night when I was actually putting this uh, this playlist together, I, I did realise I hadn't I was going to be playing this in public, and I did sort of think, oh, maybe I should tell Ash I was only joking because admitting this in public is a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> so you could see me blushing if you could actually if you're feeling this. So. Yeah, yeah, no, there's de- definite blush going on, but hey, you did it to yourself. Yeah, I did. And I did. Uh, and young, not Professor James Vanatakis, the the banker James Vanatakis, going around in his convertible. Would have been absolutely loving a song. No shame involved. No shame involved. And, and unfortunately, if I'm totally honest, no irony involved at that time either. So mm. I'd probably listen to oh it now God. with a bit of irony, um, but not well, not that I drive a convertible. But if I did, I'd probably at least have a little bit of irony about it. <laughs> so. How people change, honestly. Yeah. And you changed quite a lot uh, in a short space of time, I guess, when you left banking. So what was your what was your motivation when you first went overseas? Was it just to get away? Or yeah, look, I one of the things I did was I was offered a year off when I when I went and resigned, I just said, I'm going to get, I need to get away and clear, you know, clear my life and figure out what I'd done and, and things like that. And, um, and I was offered a year off by the organization I was working for, the finance institution. And I just said, no, no, I need to quit. I need to sort of, I basically cut all ties, you know, sold things and, and, and just moved, you know, got rid of everything and, um, and well, not everything, but most things. And then, and then just thought I want to take a year off and travel and just to like, see the world from a totally different perspective and it was it was uh, yeah so I started off in uh, I started off in New Zealand and made my way over to Chile and up through South America into North America and into Europe and eventually about almost a year later into, into Australia. So it seems like you kind of went to the world to try and you know listen and let it give you your next thing to mm. do because banking wasn't it. Um, where in the world did you find your, your next directive I guess? Yeah look um I think, yeah, and, you know, it's interesting we are talking before about saying that, you know, you always look for something to fulfill you. Well, I was looking for something. I was thinking, okay, well, this isn't fulfilling me, so now maybe traveling is going to fulfill me. And so, um, so yeah, I look, I had a really great time and met some really great people. Um, but the, the big sort of, I suppose, a big shift happened to me when I went to Bolivia. Um, so for those of you who don't know Bolivia, it's a little landlocked country in South America. And there's... Um, uh, a place called Potosi, which is a, a very small little mining um, town, or um, which is about 5,000 metres above sea level, so it's really, really high up, uh, and it's an incredibly poor place. And I went there, and what you do there, um, and the reason I ended up there was I had real no interest in going, but I ended up following a girl there, which is, uh, which is you know, which was... That'll what, do it. Was, well, yeah, that'll do it every time. Um, and uh, and when I got there, um, one of the things that you do in Potosi is you, you pay a small amount of money to do a tour through these uh, mines, um, these copper mines and tin mines and so on and um, I went to these mines and these mines were built about or created about 200 years ago and and really that technology hasn't there's no technology it's literally things are dug using hands and 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 pickaxes and and things that people drag it's a really bizarre tourist destination it's kind of like look at all these people suffering and suffering yeah over dirt yeah and and bits and bobs of metal yeah and and you know we we it was pretty bizarre because you got to got to a point in the mine and and the miners take a break and and they hand you the pickaxe and you you try and smash the rocks that they're smashing and you realize that after about six goes you're puffed 
Um, and, and you try not to cry. You try not to cry and you realise that they're doing this for eight, ten hours a day, you know, five or six days a week. Um, we continued along the mine and the big change came that we entered a, a big sort of area, sort of a part of the mine, which um, I witnessed up close and personal child labour. Um, eight-year-olds working in mines, um, in, in spaces within the mines where... Um, where adults don't fit because the narrow the, the hallways are too the narrow the gaps are too small, and uh, yeah, saw child labour. So you know we all know an eight year old or a ten year old, and imagine them working the mine for ten hours a day. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was uh, a pretty horrific sight. And um, I sort of oh, to be honest with you, what ended up happening was um, I made it made it out after witnessing this and um, sat on the side of this hill in Bolivia in in, in Potosi, sorry, and uh, um, I was sitting there and I just started crying I just couldn't believe what I witnessed and um, two things happened really quickly one was um, this this guy came up to me young guy about 16 years old with a stick of dynamite waving it in my face and saying um, talking to me and saying something to me in Spanish and my Spanish wasn't great but he was saying money, um, and I thought he was trying to mug me with a piece of dynamite. So I went, I'm going to blow you up. <laughs> yeah, he was going to blow me up. So I went to hand over my wallet. Um, but what he was doing was he was saying, I'll show you a trick with this dynamite if you um, if you give me some money. And he, the trick that he does, he basically risks his life to impress tourists. Uh, and um, and the reason he does this is because he's, he's about 16, and he was, so he was too young to work with the men in the mine, not strong enough, and too large to work with the kids in the mine. So the way he was surviving was risking buying himself up every day. Well, so he would just like plant the dynamite somewhere and stand, run away? Stand next to it stand and run it. away, yeah, oh. the last possible moment. Um, and the second thing that happened was I sat there and I went, you know, all the all my attitudes and my, my belief in free market economics and neoliberalism and all that, well, the logical end point of letting the free market run wild was um, was the child labour I had witnessed. And so uh, I... Um, I sort of when I am responsible for this you know so the true cost of my car was not you know the money that you paid for it but the lives of these children do you really mean your car as in you could trace that kind of yeah I, look I traced I actually traced where and I'm not going to talk about which which car company it was but I traced some of the inputs from that car back to to mines in Bolivia and um, a very difficult thing to do um, and it's you know and the people there confirmed some of the, the, my suspicions um, where they thought that the, the their metals were going and I was like that's that's the, that's the real cost of what, what you know of sort of cheap consumption in in um, in you know Western societies you know and I mean I don't know if you saw recently but they were talking about how um, you know how you know certain companies in Australia are selling five dollar t-shirts and you know someone's making those com- someone's making those and getting paid very little to make them and so um, I think what we should be doing is looking at the fair cost of a product and be willing to pay that so mm. yeah and who's making the most of that five dollars yeah. is also the question yeah so mm. yeah so that was that was a I suppose a a, a one moment you know, big change in my life. And that was when I sort of went, I don't want to be part of the problem. I want to be part of a solution. And how do you become part of a solution? I mean, like, there's often you, you see things going completely wrong and you just have mm. no idea how you're going to do it. Was that, was academia the answer for you or? No, no, no. Well, I didn't know what the solution was. I just went, I've got to be part of the solution. So I, when I, I mean, I took a long way around because I was still um, trying to figure out stuff. But I eventually came back here and started volunteering. Oh, actually, what ended up happening was I 
while I, while I was still in Bolivia, I witnessed um, a big protest by indigenous people who had been forced off their land, and and uh, I was sort of ended up talking to one of these guys who was protesting, and he said to me, um, I was chatting to him, and he was telling me what had happened, and it was really unjust um, displacement, you know, land grabs by private corporations, and I said to him, oh, it's amazing, you know, this is unbelievable, you know, and I, we had this conversation. And um, and he looked at me and he said, and I said, yeah, people should know about this and should stop this. And he said to me, um, well, you know, how do they put, how do they treat pe- indigenous people in your country? And I was Ooh, like, wow. yeah, well, maybe I need to do this. Maybe I should start looking at what's happening in Australia. And so that was like a, a that was like a punch in the face. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been hit in the face where your nose, your eyes go watery and your nose begins to hurt. Yeah. Um, yeah, it happened to me a lot when I was playing rugby. So, uh, and that was when I kind of went, I need to get back to Australia and, and figure some things out. Actually, we uh, can talk about this in a, in a second. I think we should play a song first. But you did come back to Australia and uh, you worked with some playwright, play, playwrights on uh, Maralinga nuclear veterans telling those stories, which is basically, it's an Indigenous story as well. Mm. So we will play a song and then uh, tell, talk a little bit about that in a second. So what have we got? We've got something from UMI. Yeah, Berlin Chair, this is um, a song that reminds me, uh, look, I, I just love UMI. I think Tim Rogers is one of Australia's best entertainers in the last you know, 30 years. Um, yep. And uh, I remember listening to this song um, on sort of repeat, basically, um, while I was crossing the on the, what the, the so-called death train in Bolivia. It's a death train because it's known to have occasionally fallen off the side of a mountain. And, <laughs> <laughs> and staying, up all, staying up and watching this most amazing view as the sun was coming up. And thinking about how you're going to die imminently. Yeah, well, you know, thinking you know, if it's going to happen, this is a place for it to happen because it's so amazingly beautiful. Just no one will know about it <laughs> when, uh, when I'm gone. But yeah, but uh, and so the UMI has always had a real soft spot for me. I love this song because it's so, again, it's a, a real emotive song. On FBI 94.5, up, uh, not up for it, it's uh, out of the box. box. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I presented that a couple of weeks ago and now I've got it stuck in my head. My name's Ash Berdebez, Professor James of Anatakis is my guest. Here we go, it's Berlin Chair by UMI.
Sounds of Morphine on your radio. Brought in by my guest on Out of the Box today, Professor James Vanatakis. We got a text in on the text line saying, Dr. James is a total legend. Was lucky enough to have him for a sociology subject first year of uni at UWS in 2007. Huge eye-opener for me. Love heart, love heart, Dave. Oh, hi, Dave. A <laughs> <laughs> little bit of love for yeah, old Dave. Nice, nice to have that love. Thank you. And, yeah, so you are a, uh, a sociology teacher, lecturer, mm. professor, and everything of the sort now. And uh, just before we came into those couple of songs, uh, one of them being by UMI called Pearl and Jet and the other one by Morphine. Uh, why did you want to play Morphine the night? Yeah, look, I think it's an incredibly sad song um, and it actually really makes me sad. Like, it made me sad now just listening to it. Um, <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> we, but, we, can, we can put on another song, like a happy song. Um, but I think, you know... I actually think it's it's important to feel sadness, and um, and one of the things you know you, I often hear is oh you shouldn't have you know shouldn't have regrets, and I think regrets are really important, and I don't I don't let go of those regrets because they remind me of the 
the, the stupid things I've done in the in the past, you know, mm. and um, and how do you how do you learn if you don't hold on to those those mistakes? And in a way, um, I, every now and again, I like getting into that space where you have a time to really reflect on on errors. And I don't, I wouldn't change in, the, in anything, you know, because I am who I am now because of that. But but uh, yeah, it, it sort of it reminds you of you know of, of the many you know things the people you hurt and the mistakes you made and, and so on mm. it's also i mean you want to tell someone the story of your life and you're like well i went from success to success and i just kind of cruised along and everything was really easy and i didn't do anything wrong i'd probably tune out in the first couple of minutes you know I, yeah your life yeah. story would just not really represent anything to do with reality yeah it's so true it's so true and you know and it's often uh, you know and this is some of the things I, I tell my students you know i always remind i always tell them you know i say look in my first semester at uni i failed four three subjects and i only passed one and, and why was that <laughs> and you know and it, it just it was it was you know it was it was because I was partying it was because I had it was a first member of my family to go to university and I didn't know who to ask for help or anything like that and uh and I always say you know so I you know never let those sort of you know things going the wrong way let you stop achieving what you want to achieve so and yeah. basically, you know, the good thing is, is when you screw up for so long, you have uh, you have such a lot of energy for making up for it, That's and you right. can do good things. Yeah. Speaking of which, um, we were talking a bit before about how uh, you made you helped some stories about the Maralinga nuclear veterans. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, look, um, yeah, coming back, I, I ended up doing a lot of work with with human rights organisations, and one of the one of the things I ended up working on was uh, was around the story of Maralinga, which is you know for those who don't know, it's where there's a lot of nuclear testing um, in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, a lot of uh, I think it was like something like uh, 22,000 uh, British veterans and 7,000 Australian veterans were exposed to nuclear fallout. Um, and also a, a countless number of um, Aboriginal people living in, in that area. And the, the, part of that story is told through um, the Big Heart Productions, which is Napogee Napogee's, uh, uh, Napogee Napogee was the, the play that they did, which tells the Aboriginal story. But I was also interested in the in the story from the, the veterans. Um, and it was really interesting because, um, you know, in their story, a lot of those guys have died out, you know, and uh, and it's their story was going untold. And mm-hmm. so I worked with a playwright called Paul Brown, who was actually one of my who was actually one of my PhD supervisors, and uh, we told the story um, through our plays, and we continue to tell the story of nuclear veterans through a project called um, Nuclear Futures. So basically, what happened? They, you know, the British go, oh, we got some nice open area here in Australia perfect place for us to let off some nuclear bombs yep. how about we do that is is that essentially what happened yeah and the australian government at that time was complicit and wanted to you know be part of the uh, you know want to support a power and the brits had fallen behind in the the nuclear race and they needed someone to test and the australian government said yeah for sure shame and yeah it's shame in fact there's so many stories you know that 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 come from that you know the fact the winds Took you know took the nuclear fallout all as far as to Queensland, so Maralinga's in South Australia. Yeah. Wow. And uh, another story was that you know there was two people that in charge of letting the Aboriginal population know what was happening. They didn't speak the local language. They didn't know anything around it. And the area that the two people were covering was about the size of I think Belgium, if not bigger. Um, and so you know these guys are driving around. And at one point they did this this leaflet drop. Uh, leaflet drop that was in English. Um, oh, good you know, work, guys. Yeah, yeah. And so the the consequences for a lot of the population has been has been devastating. And I think it you know it highlights you know all you know so many things that have been 
wrong in Australia's history, you know, our, our sort of bending over for a, a superior power, our, our sort of neglect of, of Aboriginal people, and also, you know, the veterans themselves, you know, a lot of these guys were just working class, you know, young men who just wanted to, to do something the right by their country. And in the end, you know, um, a Royal Commission ended up into, into it, essentially, and didn't use these words, but essentially said, yep, these guys were guinea pigs. Um, and, you know, and I mean, the one, one of the stories we tell, one of the stories that the veterans tell, just, just quickly, is is that, you know, at one point, these, they let off these bombs and these guys go down there in their shorts and their T-shirts and they're sitting down in the dust and they're having lunch there and they're actually even using the shovels that they use to dig the dust up um, they're using those shovels to actually cook food on, right? And um, and then these scientists turn up dressed in, you know, this sort of full white protective gear um, and just sit there and then scrape some of that sand off, put it in this like, you know, pr- you know, security proof little container then take off. And these guys are just sitting there in shorts and t-shirts, totally oh, exposed. Yeah. And it's no wonder that, that they, they've died off. And it's a tr- tragic story that unfortunately in many ways is, is being forgotten. And that's the motivation to, to be, bring people's stories. So we don't forget. And I guess that's what you can do as a sociology expert. Well, yeah. I mean, well, that's what you can do as well as a, as a DJ and a reporter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's all about yeah. it's all about narrative. It's all about storytelling, and that's the most powerful thing. And I think as a as a teacher, as an educator, for me, um, yeah, it's stories that count. People's stories and how they those, those stories we can relate to. Mm-hmm. You can bring it into the real world and make sure it doesn't bloody well happen again. Yeah. It's time for a song, and I think we might go with something from the the PhD writing years. So, Bon Iver. Yeah. Now, which song do we have today? Um, well, Skinny Love. Um, I know it's a little bit cliche. Everyone, everyone loves that song. Um, I love it. I can never get sick of hearing it. Um, again, as I said, uh, emotive songs, songs that make me really emotional when I write, because I tend to write around issues that are, are around an injustice or issues around hope, and so I try to bring out the emotions that I'm feeling when I write, and these songs ca- try and capture those those emotions. Professor James Avanatakis on FBI 94.5. You listen to Out of the Box. It's Bon Iver. Right in this moment 
Tune into Sydney's finest radio station, FBI 94.5. My name is Ash Bertabez, and I'm joined in the studio for Out of the Box by Professor James Avanatakis, a uh, sometime miracle child and now a award winning professor, uh, award winning university teacher. Uh, it's been really lovely having you in for the past hour. And when I, when I said miracle child, I am referring to a story that could be construed in, in many ways. Uh, you, another way of saying it would be you were very, very ill as a kid. Yeah, yeah. When I was, I think I was about eight, nine years old, I was diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer. And uh, I, um, yeah, I was, I was basically, my parents basically told to expect the worst. And it, it was a bit of a miracle in, in the sense of a non-religious miracle, a bit more of a scientific miracle. Um, as a child, we, um, we were shoved into different control groups and experimented on with different drugs. Um, they took a sample across Australia and New Zealand and I ended up in the lucky control group. I ended up in the lucky group. And, uh, Does that mean that there was a group that wasn't so lucky? There was, uh, I think, four other groups that weren't so lucky. So, uh, Did you know anyone in those groups? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we met because you know you're a kid. You're in hospital with a certain types of cancer, and then there's other kids in there with cancer, and you hang out together because you're all sick kids, and so you don't really do much but hang out. And so, um, yeah, and so it was really sad to not to get too intense, but to to sort of come home to come into hospital for some more treatment, and the person who used to be there wasn't there, and you'd ask when they're coming back, and and you're told that they're not. And so you know, I was only young. I was this all happened between I was nine and eleven, so. Um, wow, so that's yeah. that's quite a long time to spend ill. So basically, yeah. those three years, are you are you able to go to school? Are you able to kind of live life between cancer treatments? Uh, not not really. Mm. Um, this is one of the th- the ironies about being a, a, a sociology professor is that I never learned how to spell, and so I also <laughs> never learned how to, I never learned any syntax or or sentence structure. So if someone looks at, gives me a sentence right now and says, "Where's the verb?" I'll be like, uh, "Let me just think about that for five minutes." So I don't understand sentence structures and things like that so um because you missed out on all that oh, i missed all that stuff yeah, yeah. i mean I had a two-year gap in my in my schooling and so i really struggle with you know words like you know when people were learning how to spell certain words mm-hmm. i really struggled and even now like it sort of it haunts me occasionally when <laughs> I, I look at certain words and go i don't know what the difference between where and where is but, <laughs> but somehow you've written around about 10 books yeah yeah um <laughs> yeah i know it's funny what spell check can do and a good a good editorial assistant can help you with but Amazing. uh but yeah i mean look yeah it had a massive impact on my life i couldn't play sports for two years um 
I couldn't do anything really. I couldn't yeah. play at all, and I was I was an incredibly sick child. And yeah, and, so I think yeah. it's social socially apart from academically, probably it's one of those times where I don't know when you're nine to twelve. You know, you kind of basically just preteen. That is when you start kind of getting an idea that like, oh, I should have an identity, and I am an actual human person that is yeah. responsible for my actions. Like that's that's the kind of time when you start you know really getting a conception of yourself yeah and that really being like not not necessarily like superficial but yeah well how did that change how did being sick for so long at those ages change that did it yeah well i mean i was a really socially dysfunctional kid um i found it really hard to make friends um at that time and especially girls oh my god girls were such a foreign object to me <laughs> i mean i knew cousins that were girls but never real girls right because really girls are girls. they're real right yeah. and uh and you know and so yeah it really did shape my it really did shape i suppose it shaped my life and it shaped my um my view of the world um even even through the banking years i kind of knew something about vulnerabilities that i never never really f- forgotten maybe so. that's why you were trying to overcompensate for the fact that you felt vulnerable there's that kind of you know that sense of stability that you get from being a banker yeah maybe maybe you were trying to compensate for the fact that you know yeah i actually had never thought of that but that's a pretty good pop psychology there (laughs) (laughs) and actually i like it i like it i can use that as the imposing this on you yeah yeah look you're excused for banking now (laughs) i I mean it was really funny because it was i mean it wasn't funny but it was a really bizarre time um and it's interesting because since then I did some volunteer work with the Cancer Council and especially speaking to some families who are going through hard times and saying, oh, you know, people, you know, don't give up, you know, that kind of thing. Not give false hope, but also say, you know. Back to hope then. Yeah, yeah. So it did, um, yeah, it did shape. I think it's really, you know, I read somewhere, I think Michael Ondaatje wrote that, you know, experiences shape the contours of your life, you know, and I really think that's one of the deep, deep contours that's, that's shaped who I am. That's really interesting. So do you end up having more verve in life, being so close to death for such a long time? Yeah, I, th- I think I think it sort of teaches you that you just don't take things for granted, you know, um, that, you know, don't put off what no, tomorrow what you can do today, you know, enjoy enjoy those moments. And I think that's, um, that's part of why I think I just love doing what I do and make sure that that's what I do. I love what I do. And that's, I suppose, the biggest lesson is that I only do what I love, really, um, and I'm really lucky that I've been able to do that. And, and your really students blessed. are yeah. as well. <laughs> well, it's, it's time. It's top of the hour and it is time for our final song for the show. I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on. It's been really special, Dr. Professor James Ivanatakis. It's been a great yarn. Thanks, Ash. I've All enjoyed right. it. Well, our last song is by Rufus. And which one do we have? Yeah, look, um, I, 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 look I, I can't remember which one I picked off the album. Sorry. <laughs> I believe it's called Take Me. Take Me, yeah, yeah. Look, <laughs> I mean, I just think Rufus are one of the... Just the night, just the music is again really emotive. Um, Australian band, and I just really, really love listening to them, and and I just think they capture so much um, in their in their in their music. In, depending on no matter what time of the day it is, you can listen to Rufus and really enjoy it. So, thanks, James.
swim.